With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption and logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com slash insights. You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Robbie Samuels hosts the On the Schmooze podcast. Robbie, tell listeners what to expect from the show. Since 2015, I've interviewed entrepreneurs who overcame challenges to achieve success in their field or industry. Tune in to On the Schmooze to listen as I ask deep questions to elicit untold stories about leadership and networking. And where can people subscribe? Find the show at ontheschmooze.com or on marketingpodcast.net or just search for it wherever you get your podcasts. You heard them. Go subscribe. Elizabeth George is the New York Times and internationally best-selling author of 20 British crime novels featuring Detective Inspector Thomas Lindley and his unconventional partner, Detective Sergeant Barbara Havers. Her crime novels have been translated into 30 languages and featured on television by the BBC. Here to talk about her forthcoming release, Something to Hide, is Elizabeth George. Welcome to Uncorking a Story, Elizabeth. It's great to be here. Thank you very much for having me. You know, I always like to say um, that this is all about sort of the stories behind the story. So what I'm curious about um, is where does your story as a writer begin? Well, my story as a writer begins when I was seven years old and uh, discovered how much I loved writing the same kind of little stories that I found in uh, the children's books in Mountain View Public Library. My dad was a great reader and he would frequently take my brother and me downtown Mountain View, which at the time was not Silicon Valley, but was this sleepy little farming town. And uh, we would go to the library there, which was in a storefront, wooden, uh, you know, wooden floors and rickety shelves. Very, very atmospheric. I always remember it because the librarian who was a woman um, had a mustache and I was sort of fascinated with looking at this woman with a mustache, but I was more fascinated by the, the books. And so my brother and I would each get a pile of children's books and take them home and read them really quickly. We would start reading in the car on the way home. Um, I very quickly realized that I wanted to write these things. I've always been the kind of person who writes what I like to read. And so loving to read these little children's books, that's where I started to, to write, right when I was seven years old. And I created my own little, little stories. Uh, so that's how it began for me. And I have written all my life. Um, I, I've generally had something in the works, whether it was a short story or um, a, a novel or an article or um, poetry. I've always written. Was it your your dream when you were when you were younger to be a writer, or did did your sort of career take a, a different path initially? Um, 
I never really thought about being a professional writer. I had no idea really how one would even go about being a professional writer. So initially, I um, wasn't sure what I was going to do. And these were in the days where, at least in my family, there was very little guidance uh, as to what either uh, I was going to do or what my brother was going to do. So uh, so basically, we just sort of trotted off to college uh, without knowing, you know, what we were what our aims were. Ultimately, I became a teacher of English because I discovered that um, I was very, very interested in literature and a lot more interested in the literature of Great Britain than in the literature of the United States. So I became an English teacher at the high school level, which really doesn't have very much to do with teaching literature. It has more to do with, um, with writing and, and grammar and, and some literature as well. I did that for 13 and a half years, but at the same time, I was writing on the side. What happened though, is that I was never really sure what I wanted to, to write. And ultimately I settled on the, uh, the crime novel because I was teaching a course called The Mystery Story at the high school where I taught. And I had done uh, an investigation of mystery stories. And I began with Dorothy L. Sayers' um, long essay, The History of the Mystery Story. And as I read that essay, and then as I taught the, uh, the class, I began to think, you know, I think I could write one of these myself. And so that's really what set me off uh, writing um, mysteries. And I never considered, and people always ask me, well, why did you choose England? You know, I lived in Southern California, and that also is a place where many uh, crime stories and mystery stories have been set. But um, I chose England because really, I have had a long time fascination with England. So it never really occurred to me to set the books anywhere else, nor did it occur to me that I knew absolutely nothing about the, you know, about how crimes are solved. Uh, in any in any country, <laughs> let alone in England. Right. So I had to learn all of that. So when you started writing, you know, when it, when you came to that sort of epiphany that hey, I could I could do this. This is something I could do. Um, how did you start? What what was your approach to to sort of penning that that first novel of yours? Uh, the first thing I had to do is come up with the characters, and so I thought about that for a long time. You can you can spend your life thinking about characters, and I thought, well, you know, if I'm going to do a British crime novel, who's going to be the sleuth? And um, this is sort of an interesting story because when I was 12 years old, and it actually is related to how I ended up with the particular sleuth that I thought was going to be my main character. When I was um, about 12 years old, my mom and I traveled by bus from Chico, California, where, where we were living at the time, to the San Francisco Bay Area to visit some friends because that's where I was from. And, uh, and we were, I remember this distinctly, that we were on the, the commuter bus basically from San Francisco down to Mountain View, this is the last leg of the journey. And in Palo Alto, a young man got on the bus, on the bus and um, he was probably a student at Stanford University. And he had a, uh, he had a leg brace and I could see the brace through the uh, sole of his shoe. And I never got the image of that young man ever. And uh, so my first character I decided would be this man, Simon St. James, who would have, uh, who would be disabled in that way. 
Um, and then I thought, well, okay, well, he, he's going to be the sleuth, as I thought, I thought, but I was, he's, what kind of sleuth is he going to be? And I decided he would be a, an expert in forensics. But then I needed somebody to come to him with his, uh, you know, with forensic problems. That meant that there had to be a policeman. And so I created uh, the character of Thomas Lindley. And that was sort of fun to do because, I, you know, I... Um, waited for a long time to see somebody who could be Thomas Lindley. Because I had no idea, when, what does this guy look like? Who is he exactly? And then I saw Chariots of Fire, and this is, of course, you could say a long time ago. And um, there's a scene where the actor Nigel Havers is leaping over um, uh, the hurdles in practice as his butler puts champagne glasses at the end of each hurdle, so knowing that uh, the young man would probably not want to uh, upset the champagne glasses. And I, when I looked at him, I thought, oh, this guy, this is what, this is Lindley, uh, only with improvements. So, so I, I always call him Nigel Havers with improvements. So once I found him, then I began creating the, you know, the world that these two guys live in and come from. And so I just sort of built from there. Uh, my first attempt at a crime novel I wrote in 1983. And um, it was, uh, it was, it was uh, an abysmal failure. But <laughs> Tell I me why. why, why would you characterize it as an abysmal failure? Well, first, <laughs> I wrote it basically to see, I mean, I wanted to prove to myself that I could complete a novel because I'd written, like, when I was in seventh grade, I wrote a little novel that was a crime, a mystery story novel, sort of like Nancy Drew. Um, and so I, I had completed that, but I wasn't sure I could complete a full on, you know, go for it novel. So, uh, so I did that. And then, and then I, you know, I was after the end of it, I was really pretty depressed and I didn't expect to be depressed. And my husband said to me, well, why don't you try to get it published? And well, it never occurred to me to try to get it published. So I thought, oh, okay, all right, I'm not, not doing anything else. So I uh, began sending it out and it was, you know, universally rejected. Um, but but one, there was a wonderful um, editor at uh, Charles Scribner's Son, and her name was Suzanne Kirk. She read the book, and she was just really wonderful. She said, "You're you're a good writer, but if you want to write uh, this kind of novel, it would be a good idea to to read a few." <laughs> and so. And so I thought, oh, because she said, and she went on to say that, you know, modern crime novels really weren't written in this manner, because I had written based on the golden age of mystery. Mm -hmm. Those were the writers that I had read, like Marjorie Allingham and Dorothy L. Sayers. So, uh, so and in my first attempt at a novel, uh, a crime novel, what happens in the end is that my forensic scientists takes everybody into the library of the great house in which they're staying and uh, reveals to them who, <laughs> who the killer is, who cooperatively trots off to jail. Well, you know, I didn't realize that if I was going <laughs> to, that that really isn't how it's done any longer. So I thought, well, okay, now I, I'll read a few to see how it's actually done. And, uh, and then I uh, did my, uh, my second attempt at a crime novel. And this one was much more, um, it, was, it was more realistic. I wouldn't say that it was brilliant, but it was definitely more realistic. 
Um, so it's certainly also- not, but, but not an abysmal failure because I mean, if you didn't have that experience and if that editor didn't read that and give you that advice, you wouldn't have known how to pivot. Exactly. I was, and you know, considering that an, an editor at a publishing house was actually willing to read it was pretty amazing. Yeah. So uh, yeah, that was a great, it was great for me that that happened. And I realized how fortunate I was, but it's like, you know, I sort of proved that it really isn't who you know, it's how you write. Yeah. You know? hey, why, why did you characterize yourself as feeling depressed after you finished that first one? Oh, you know, I, don't, I, I really don't know I, why I was depressed. Um, it, maybe it was that sense that, oh, I finally did what I set out to do, and I don't know what I'm going to now do to uh, as, as a new goal. It could, it could have been that. Um, I had certainly waited a long time to, to begin writing, and, um, I, and and while I was really very glad that I finished the novel, and while I was really thrilled that I'd proved something to myself, it was the what next, I think, that, that uh, you know, am I going to write another one? I'm just going to go back to the classroom. What am I going to do now? Yeah. After you you went through the experience of, of getting your first one published, I'm curious, because you have the perspective of somebody who is teaching English and, and literature. So coming at it from that perspective, and then, you know, the perspective of somebody who is actually written and published, did it change the way you, you approach teaching at all? Well, um, no, I, no, I don't, I don't think it really did. Um, of course, I, because when I was when I my when my book was accepted for publication, um, this was the third attempt at a crime novel that was accepted for publication, and I got a two book contract immediately, and so I had to write the next novel. So I took a leave of absence okay. from teaching and never went back to the high school level again. I've taught since then in uh, in creative writing programs and in in seminars and, and things like that. Um, and I think the fact that I was a high school teacher really helps me know how to engage people in a, in a classroom situation. So that was a huge help. What did you What did you learn about yourself during that process, or just or, you know, kind of going back to the that first attempt, you know, second attempt, and then your third, and um, what did you learn about yourself? Certainly learned that. Um, that I was uh, was the kind of person who did not give up and didn't that a person who was really persistent. And also I learned probably most importantly that the key to my um, dealing with lifelong depression was to stay creative. And for me, the, cre- the creative process of writing a novel was super uh, uplifting and very, fr- it really freed me from, from the depression that had kind of haunted my life. So I would think that's the biggest thing that I learned about it. Yeah, that's a powerful statement, sort of, um, you know, and first of all, thank you for, or I appreciate your admitting that of dealing with depression is because mental health is certainly something that I don't think we talk about nearly enough, um, especially in in this country, but how how does it help? I mean, how does, how does it help with, with feelings of depression? What what is it about sort of creating a world, uh, now I'm putting words in your mouth, but, you know, when you're writing a novel that, that kind of helps you in that regard. Um, you know, I, I had a psychiatrist explain to me once that based upon the way I was, the, the way I had grown up, that, um, that in, in its resting state, in other words, when my, when my mind was not 
engaged in something creative in its resting state my mind was attracted to negativity and to depression and because of that i was going to have to stay creative for the rest of my life in in one form or another it's not necessarily that i always had to write novels but i did have to do something creative or i would find myself back in the same position of being extremely depressed so when i would complete a novel um, i usually would take off about four months between books but that was in the glory days when my books were uh, shorter and I was <laughs> than they are now. Um, and so I would, but with by the fourth month, uh, well, really by the end of the second month, I would be pretty seriously depressed. So, and, and looking for, uh, you know, some reason for the deep, for the depression that I was feeling without knowing that it had everything to do with the creative process with keeping my mind engaged and active. Fascinating. Well, tell me about uh, your forthcoming uh, novel, Something to Hide. Well, Something to Hide grew out of a conversation that I had with my, um, with my goddaughter's aunt. She is an international attorney, and she was working on a particular, um, a particular aspect of the abuse of women that was attempting to push. She was with a group, and they're... they're their focus is putting an, an end to this particular form of uh, feminine abuse. And I'm not saying what it is because it's a huge part of what the novel is, is, is about. Um, so as I talked to her about it and uh, she explained the extent of it and she also explained the various elements that constitute this particular form of uh, female abuse, I thought, oh, this would really be good. This would really be good for a, a novel. Uh, and that's, you know, often the way I get ideas for a book is by talking to someone. And so I began exploring this, this topic um, through uh, articles that I found, through, uh, through listening to interviews with women uh, that had been done, um, that were posted on the internet, through looking at films, of people who were, you know, attempting to put a stop to this, TED Talks, things like that. And that's how I began to gather the information about it. Um, and I felt that it would be really, that to have this as sort of like the underpinning of the novel, why everything happens in the novel would, you know, serve the function of simultaneously opening people's eyes to it and to the extent of it. And at the same time, really give me a great deal of um, opportunity to explore the power that women really have, but don't use. So it all kind of fit together that way. When, um, when did you start uh, writing this one? Well, this was a really tough book to write. I'm trying to remember, I can't even remember when I started it at this point, but I think it was, um, I think it was 2018. Um, and the, the difficulty for this, that I had with this book has to do really with the chronology of events. It, it didn't have it to do with the, you know, the crime itself, nor did it have anything to do with the investigation, but it had to do with this idea of what does the reader know and when does the reader know it? And um, so, so a lot of, there's a, there's a backstory that exists before my detectives ever get involved in the case. And the backstory is really crucial so that the reader understands what leads up to the, the murder of this police detective. Um, 
but what and, and at the same time during the investigation my investigators cannot learn something that the reader already knows because the readers read these first hundred pages so that made the chronology just unbelievably difficult and i ended up doing five different drafts of the book before i was satisfied enough to send it to my editor and that that took a lot of time and it took a lot of examining the order in which things are revealed to the reader and the way scenes display causality one scene leading to another scene somewhere along the line um and oh my gosh i had uh, i had all kinds of documents that i was looking at all kinds of flow charts that i was looking at trying to figure out day by day uh what happened when after i had written the first draft yeah i mean because the devil really is in the details in, oh, in, yeah. in, a, in a story oh, like that yeah Definitely. Uh, yeah. I mean, the reader may the reader may figure out stuff. That's fine. But I don't want to hand it to them on the platter and then have them look at my detectives thinking, well, why can't you guys figure this out? I figured it out. <laughs> right, right. You, you definitely you don't want to have it so that they see it coming. Um, mm -hmm. Maybe they, they know something's out there. But um, yeah, that, right. that's one way to let down. Uh, yeah, really let down readers. Um, you know, I, I'm curious, you know, you mentioned the name Nancy Drew earlier. Um, did you did you watch or have you heard of Only Murders in the Building on Hulu? No, what's it called? It's called Only Murders in the Building. It, it stars Steve Martin and Martin Short, um, as well as no, Gomez. No. So it's sort of this take on true crime podcasts. And it's it sort of kind of is a parody of, of a true crime podcast. And um, but, but Nancy Drew, I mean, is uh, there's one character who grew up kind of reading Nancy Drew novels. I was just curious if if you heard it. But if you haven't seen it, um, it it's very, very funny. Uh, it's it's sort of it, it's certainly time well spent watching it. But. And it's on Hulu, did you say? It is on Hulu. Yeah, it's a Hulu original. OK, well, I, I, it sounds it sounds really fun. So oh, I'll have to check. I will check it out. Yeah, it's a very and the great cameos in there. Nathan Lane uh, shows up for a bit and um, Tina Fey, who I always uh, always enjoy seeing on screen. Mm -hmm. um, well, I have some questions for you that I'm that I ask all of my guests and uh, I call it the hot seat. Seven questions. And uh, I, I don't you know, don't want you to overthink them. Um, just just kind of use your gut as as we kind of go through these. And um, okay. the first the first one is, how do you feel when you're staring at a blank piece of paper or a blank screen? Well, how do I feel? Probably, I, I think I feel um, a sense of anticipation more than anything else. I'm definitely not afraid um, and I'm not worried. And um, because I see this as my profession, I know that this is part of the process is looking at that blank sheet of, or in my case, looking at the blank com computer screen. So I think probably more anticipation, like a sense of, okay, here we go. Right. So it's more of a positive anticipation versus. Oh, a yeah. Yeah. It's, it's not negative at all. No. Does anything else in your life give you that same sense of anticipation? Oh. 
Um, I, I would say probably when I am setting off to a particular place in England to do my location research, I always have a tremendous sense of, of anticipation and, uh, and, and hope, especially the hope of seeing something new and or seeing something that's going to suggest story to me. Um, that's a, that, that would be the closest analogy I could come up with. That sounds like uh, great research. Um, <laughs> great oh, approach to research. I've seen, I've seen places in England that uh, you know that no tourist would ever dream of going to. Really well, what, give me one of them. What's uh, what what should what should go onto my list if I wanted sort of a a non touristy view of England? <laughs> well, definitely you want to go to a cement factory. Um, uh, well, I, I look, I that's on my list. How did you know? One time I was in a, uh, what they call a caravan park, but we call a trailer park that had been developed on the grounds of a ruined abbey. That I thought was just amazing. Um, just this past, uh, past September, I was in England doing um, research for my next book and uh, went to a, a, a tin streaming uh, organization, no, tin streaming business to learn about tin streaming. And that was fascinating. And this guy's been tin streaming for 40 years. It was just astonishing talking to him. So sort of like that guy, that kind of thing that the typical tourist, you know, doesn't really think, oh, let's go here. Let's go. Let's go learn about tin streaming. Hey, kids, we're going to, uh, we're going to, we're not going to go to Stonehenge today. Instead, <laughs> We're going to go learn about tin streaming. Aren't you excited? <laughs> exactly, yeah. Um, all right, number two. Uh, what lesson about writing or publishing did you have to learn the hard way? Oh, the hard way. Writing or publishing the hard way. You know, I, I never really had any big expectations. Um, I think... I don't even call it the hard way. Um, maybe that what I had to learn was that that um, building an audience takes time, and uh, building a readership uh, takes time, and it takes more time than <laughs> than you think it's going to take. Uh, although, yeah, and I and I built up a readership over time, but I was I was not out of the gate, you know bestseller, et cetera, et cetera. No, 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 nothing like that. Yeah. So everything gets, everything takes time. How do you, how do you nurture that audience? I'm sorry, could you repeat that? Yeah. How do you nurture that audience? I mean, once you build up that audience and I understand it takes time, how do you nurture them? Oh, well, you know, what I do is I, I write the kind of novels, uh, that I like to read. So by that, I mean, I, I always enjoy reading a series. And, uh, but I don't enjoy reading series where nothing ever changes. So like Hercule Poirot and Miss Marple, they're always who they were from the first book to the last book. And um, I, I don't care for that kind of series. And so that's not the kind of series that I write. And I think one of the ways that, uh, that readers become, um, passionate and interested 
uh, passionate about and interested in the series is because they don't, they don't know exactly what's going to happen in the lives of the characters and the lives of these these characters in, in the book you know they they grow they change they uh you know some people are there some people for a while and then not there and then come back and so i think the reader uh one of the things that the reader reads for is to see what's going to happen in the lives of these characters so for me as a writer um, and what I would always suggest to anybody who wants to write a series is, boy, create characters that you personally really like because you're going to be spending a lot of time with them. And uh, and I think that my fondness for the characters comes through in, in the books and the, uh, the readers also then grow fond of the characters as a result. Well, that's a good segue into question number four or number three, rather, which is what advice would you give an aspiring author? Well... I, I would say that I think it's important to remember that uh, that character is a story and that from the creation of characters in advance of coming up with an elaborate plot, from the creation of the characters, you actually discover things that you didn't know would have the potential to be in your book. You discover, and you discover usually the theme, theme of the book, but the characters are going to tell you who they are. And you simply have to be attuned to them enough to listen when they're telling you. So uh, that is, I think, the, the main thing I would encourage people to do is to develop their characters and give a lot of time to that development of characters. Yeah. Yeah. And I love when, when you, you were talking earlier about sort of seeing this person on the bus with, um, you know, with, yeah. a, with a leg brace. And, you know, it's fascinating to me, you know, people who, who write for a living or are storytellers, um, I think we, we look at the world in a slightly different way and we observe things and notice things that, that other people don't. Um, mm -hmm. And that's true for a lot of the comedians I talk to as well. Um, hmm. But, you know, I'm curious if, if you had to give somebody advice on finding characters or developing characters, what would you tell them? I would tell them to, uh, to begin by jotting down a list of the things that they would really want to know about any character. If they are and considering and to consider themselves as gods, because this is actually the most creative part of the entire process, aside from the writing itself, which is about artistic language. But the creation of character is, you know, I when I do that, I am a god, and these are the individuals that I'm creating. And I think that's an important thing to, you know, to consider that here's your moment of creation and your moment of control over who is going to appear in your book. And uh, I would say, you know, create in, in, in advance of all that a list of what you want to know. So I, I always, I work off a list that I've had for a really long time and I call it my character prompt sheet. And it's just, it's, it's just a list of, of uh, qualities or um, uh, pieces of personal history that, uh, that drive my character, in my individual character. Yeah. Yeah, certainly not a process to be taken lightly when you are, uh, you know, put, putting yourself in the uh, mindset of a, a god and creating a world and creating people. Uh, yeah, and I think that's, I think that's what's really important is to remember that you are, you know, you're creating a world. You're not, you're, see, I like it when, when the, 
I like characters to determine the action. People have said to me, and I'm sure you've heard this too, my characters are doing, aren't doing what I want them to do. Well, yeah, that's because you're trying to manipulate your characters through a plot that you've devised for them. But if you put that away and know the end point that you're trying to reach, for example, in a crime novel, you know the end point has to be the uh, revelation of who the killer is. So that's the through line and everything else is, uh, you know, is cream basically. And that, that everything else is what's going to make the story feel real. So you have a, a number of uh, sort of accomplishments um, uh, behind you and certainly future ones ahead of you. Um, I'm curious, how, how do you celebrate your success? Oh gosh. Well, you know, one of the things that has been that has been uh, so fortunate has made me feel fortunate is the fact that through my writing, I've gotten to know so many other writers, not only writers that are, you know, here in Seattle, which has a big writing community, but also writers uh, across the country that I've come into contact with and have met at various events or, or seminars or book fairs. And, uh, and, and knowing those people ha has been a real blessing in my life, uh, especially, you know, as I have a group of uh, female writers and we call ourselves the sisters. Um, there are five of us and every year we go away for a writing retreat at some place or other in the United States or, or Europe. Um, and, I wouldn't have ever had that in my life had I not uh, had I not pursued writing and had I not um, said yes to a lot of things. And I'd say that saying of saying yes is probably the best way to celebrate it. Yeah, great. Um, you know, I know we, we never want to think about our our sort of final moments uh, on, in this in this life. But if you if you had to look back on your life um, today, um, what would you be most proud of? Oh, that's really interesting. Well, I would be most proud of uh, something that I did in uh, in 1996, which was uh, I got into contact with a, a total stranger whose picture I had seen in the Los Angeles Times with with his two children. And I was very taken by the photograph because it was about something that had happened to a number of kids in this particular elementary school. And, uh, and, and that was that they had lost their mothers during that school year. And this was in um, May, I think, when I, when I saw the article. And it had a picture of the, the man and his daughter and his son. And uh, I was very taken with the, with the story and in particular with the daughter. So I wrote to the man and uh, asked him if he would, uh, if, if he did, I said, if you don't have any female relatives in the area and your daughter would like to, you know, have a, have a mentor or whatever, I'd be real happy to meet her. And um, I think that he probably would not have responded had he not just the day before 
read an article about me in the local paper. So it was a publicity thing. He saw that and then, he, you know, the next day he gets this letter from the exact person that he was reading about. So he uh, he asked his daughter and she has always been the kind of person who, who, uh, who says yes to different experiences. She was 10 years old. And uh, so she said yes. And so I went over to her house to, uh, to meet her and, uh, and, you know, I've been her substitute mom ever since. And she's now uh, 36 years old with two children. Wow. And yeah, and that was just, uh, I, that was a decision that I made that I have never for one second regretted. It's been great. I, that, that story literally sent a chill kind of running up and down my spine. Um, the, the fact that he reads about you the day before. Yeah, it was pretty amazing. You reach yeah. out. I mean, is 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 that coincidence or is that sort of the universe bringing two people who need each other together? Yeah, I think it was probably that. Yeah, the, the universe was at work in that. Yeah. Wow. That's uh, oof. It's going to be hard to top that one for my future guests. I'll just <laughs> throw that out there. Um, here's uh, here's something that I'm sure you'll have a perspective on. Uh, given your your previous career, uh, if you could choose one book as a mandatory read for all high school students, what book would you choose and why? Wow. You know, that is that is so tough because, you know, there are novels that uh, that, you know, that will stand the test of time that have stood the test of time. Um, and and it's, it's really hard for me to say, and let me explain why. The other day, somebody asked me almost an identical question. And the book that immediately comes to mind is one that's already written in high school, which is To Kill a Mockingbird. I've read that book um, at least 10 times, probably more. And I remember my mom once saying to me, how many times are you going to read that book? And I said to her, I remember what I said, I, I'm going to keep reading it until I stop getting something out of it. Because every time I read it, I would, I would read it with new eyes. And, uh, and, and I think that's is a hugely important book uh, for, for many reasons uh, for people to read. And that, you know, and Atticus Finch is such a great heroic character. But then after I said that, and then, then I realized that, that another book, but I'm not sure how it would resonate in high school is um, is uh, Tim O'Brien's book um, in the Lake of the Woods, which I which I just think is is just brilliant. It is um, is a masterpiece, and, uh, and probably like for an AP English class, that would be a, a book that I would choose. Okay, well, why that book? Pardon me. Why that book? You know, I I just find that book so brilliant and uh and so profound and to you know to take this one incident that occurred in the in the vietnam war and then to get into the mind of the you know one of the perpetrators of this and to see it all play out and to see the uh the destructive influence of lying about who you really are and, and then how that ricochets through the rest of your life. I just, uh, I think it's just an, an incredible object lesson for people. Last of our seven. Um, I want you to, to sort of imagine um, that that little girl who was at the Mountain View Library um, and you're kind of going through and, and you're picking out your stack of books that, that you're going to bring home. Um, and imagine that you could write a letter to her. 
what words of advice would you tell her? What, what, what would you share with her? Well, I would tell her never stop reading because you will find that reading opens up worlds for you that you never expected to be opened to you. And then I would also add, and no matter what you decide you want to do with your life, never give up. Never give up. That is, uh, you know, I was, I was listening to, uh, I'm a runner and I was listening to, um, his motivational coach when I was on a long run yesterday and, uh, I needed the motivation because it was like 28 degrees in Connecticut, <laughs> which is where I live. Um, and you know, it was, it was curious. He said something, um, it's okay to stop as long as you start again. Mm. Um, and yeah. I think, I think there's, there's sort of a, an overlap there in terms of never giving up, you know, it's okay mm -hmm. to, you know, get frustrated or, or hit a wall so long as, you know, you can learn from the experience. And, and it reminds me of the story yeah. you were, you were telling about that editor who was sort of giving you advice on sort of a modern, you know, modern crime yeah. novel. And uh, yeah. 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 Um, I, I'll add that. Um, when my second book, my second attempt at a British crime novel was rejected that very night, we went, my husband and I went to hear PD James talking at University of California in, in Irvine. And I afterwards, I was in the line to have a book autographed. And so I said to her, um, uh, you know, can, can, you know we, how many times were you rejected before you got, uh, you know, became a professional writer? And she was very sweet. She said, she began with saying, by saying, oh my dear, things were very different then. And then I knew that was soon, but she was going to say yes, which was true with P.D. James is that she had never been rejected by anybody for anything. So, uh, so I, which is basically what she said, but she, then she added something really wonderful. She said, you have done something that most people only dream of doing. You have written a novel. You must never give up. And that was you know, that was just really a profound moment for me. And I've yeah. used that. I've clung to that my entire writing career. Yeah. God, words of encouragement like that are just so important. You know, whether you hear oh, yeah. them when you're, when you're a kid and it's a teacher or, or a family member or as a professional, you know, encouragement plays such a, a strong role in, in what it is that, that writers do. Yeah, it, it absolutely does. And really, I think of any creative endeavor that somebody is embarking upon um, can be enhanced by somebody else giving them encouragement. You know, well, not, not false praise, but encouragement, which is yeah, different. True encouragement. Well, Summing Hide will be released on January 11th. And as we record this, that is tomorrow. So that is a, a big day, a big day for you. Um, where can people buy the book if they want to buy it, Elizabeth? Um, they can buy the book from their, uh, from their local bookstore. It will be available there. And uh, there'll be various outlets. They can buy the book online as well, especially since it's so difficult now for many, many people to, uh, to get out to bookstores. But it'll, it should be everywhere. Should be everywhere. I always like to encourage people, if they can, to uh, go to those small independent bookstores that are... Yeah. Uh, 
that are in our communities and uh, could could of course use uh, use the support, especially uh, you know during uh, during these yeah. uh, interesting times that we're living in. Yeah, absolutely, I agree. Elizabeth, thank you so much. I enjoyed this conversation, and I wish you all the best with uh, with the new book. Thank you very much, Mike. It was great talking to you. Likewise. You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe.